humanitarian. Disasters are not natural, far from it. The impact of a crisis is shaped by a wide range of societal factors, and disasters replicate and amplify the inequalities that exist in society so that it is the most marginalized communities that are hit the hardest. We've just lived through two years of a textbook example of that with the way in which the pandemic has disproportionately affected the most vulnerable in our world. Yet we continue to refer to sudden onset crises as natural disasters, and that is not just a question of semantics. It's an indication of how we often tell the wrong stories of the nature of crises, and therefore also very often seek the wrong solutions. I think that's very much true for us as practitioners. We, we talk about the most vulnerable and we make them the center of our discourse and of our interventions. But ask yourself how often we dig into the root causes of this vulnerability we talk about and try to integrate into our programs components that can address the structural issues leading to the situations we work with. I'm not saying that no progress has been made. There are plenty of good examples of uh, smarter humanitarian programming. But if you follow the Nexus discussion just a little bit, I think you will agree that we still have some way to go in terms of engaging with and integrating non-humanitarian narratives and objectives into our programs, even when it is not in conflict with the humanitarian principles. So it's a good thing that we have disaster scholars and that this week's guests on Humanitarian are Senja Smutina and Jason from Medding. Senja and Jason are academics and co-host the podcast Deconstructing Disasters. I stumbled across the pod uh, by accident and have been listening to it for a couple of months. It's informative and very entertaining. Senja and Jason can literally deconstruct anything and have a great time doing so. And if you don't believe me, I can recommend their Christmas episode where they even managed to deconstruct the naughty and the nice list. Spoiler alert, WHO ends up somewhere in between naughty and nice. I wanted to have Senya and Jason on the show because I think they bring an important perspective to us as practitioners and because I wanted to explore what we can use each other for. It was a highly enjoyable conversation and I hope you will find it useful too. Before we jump in, there is, as always, a couple of things you can do if you would like to support the show. Firstly, rate and review us wherever you listen. It really helps. Secondly, if you like the show, recommend it to friends and colleagues. You can also follow us on social media, subscribe to our newsletters and all that. But actually, the most important thing you can do is to tell us what you think. Give us some feedback, suggest new episodes. Critique is also very welcome. We really listen to it. You can reach us on social media or on email info at truemanitarian.org. Enjoy the conversation. Senja Smutina and Jason from Medding, welcome to Trumanitarian. Thank you. Hi, thank you. It's fantastic to have you guys here. We don't have many academics uh, pass by the show, but but I managed to lure the two of you in, so I'm really... <laughs> I'm on best behavior today and slightly nervous of having such big brains uh, on the show. Uh, <laughs> Senja, you are a reader in Sustainable and Resilient Urbanism at uh, Lockborough University. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, points for pronouncing my unpronounceable title. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you. And, and Jason, you're an associate professor at University of Florida. Yes, indeed. And the two of you together run a podcast called uh, Deconstructing Disasters that I 
have had the pleasure of listening to uh, over the past couple of months. And and it's a really interesting podcast uh, for anybody with sort of a, an interest in disasters and understanding that as a phenomenon. It also happens to be a lot of fun. You you guys seem to have a, a tremendously good time when you yes, when do. you record the <laughs> <Yeah>. show. <laughs> but just just start by telling us a bit about this podcast. Why why did you start this, and and what's the purpose of it? I think we got talking a few years ago, maybe 2017 or so. Right, we got talking about. Um, you know, we just share sharing our frustrations about some of the ways that disasters were um, discussed and um, analyzed, and how normative a lot of the um, analysis was that was coming out from academics, in particular. Um, and and you know, we saw how people were like learning about what you know the core concepts of disasters in a very normative way. And so students were like picking up and doing the same thing. And um, yeah, I think I think we were frustrated, but we also thought, you know, there's a way to do something that's educational, but also really um, fun. And, um, you know, something that would give us an outlet to just like rant about stuff and, and also engage with really interesting people, you know, and we started talking about like, what if we could talk to this person or this person, because we really appreciate the way that they conceptualize disaster. Um, so we just, it, it was pretty organic and we, um, we talked about it for several months and then kind of started to really consult with other people and plan it and do demos and we, the demos were terrible. And, uh, but we, yeah, it, it took us a, what, nine months before we released our first episode. And, um, yeah, I've been going for a few years and I always tell people it's like one of the most fun and rewarding, um, parts of what I do. And it, it allows me to maybe think about things in so many different ways because we have some incredible guests that come on and just like stretch the way that we're thinking and so there, to some extent, you can do that if you're in your books all the time, but it, it makes a big difference when you're like talking in real time with people and like stretching each other's way of thinking. So I don't know if you want to add to that extent, but it's, it's a really uh, rewarding and enriching experience for me, for sure. Yeah, same for me. You know, I absolutely love doing it. And not just because we get to chat to kind of most amazing, inspiring people, but, you know, we learn so much from them. Um, as well. And I think one of the things that we are now kind of realized we can do, you know, and we're in season six now, is that podcast actually allows us not on, only to kind of explore our ideas, right, and perhaps communicate the, or unpack what disaster is a bit better, but also to amplify some voices which are really quite hidden, you know, although uh, there are so many, many amazing scholars from Global South, um, amazing early career scholars who are just, you know, they don't get cited. They, they are known just because they're from Global South and their early career. Um, so, yeah, that's just been probably the most rewarding experience and we'll keep going forever, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> You you spoke about uh, being frustrated or annoyed with the way disasters are described and discussed and taught at universities. What what specifically is it that that frustrates you or that frustrated you? I think you know for me, um, you know, how long do you have? Is this the first question? I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure we'll come back to this later on today. But for me, I guess the most frustrating 
um, thing has always been the fact that disasters are seen as a kind of a natural phenomenon that is not con connected to politics at all, right? That is just seen as an event, as a shock, um, and is never, or you know, hardly ever discussed um, in the context of capitalism. And th those relationships have just never acknowledged and done, and the podcast really allowed us to unpack that. Like I said earlier, it's like the the approaches that are very um, like pretend to, or or maybe intentionally exclude any analysis of power as well, and um, avoid like disaster analysis or thinking that avoids. Um, some of the discussions of oppression, capitalism, like you said, power, um, inequality, all of these things that are for, for us are like foundational to what a disaster is and why people are impacted differently in disaster. But, but the idea that we can just have a, a normative response that helps everybody equally is to, to me, it just reinforces the status quo. So, um, and it, it, try, it tries to return everything to normal so that those in power don't really need to worry about the, the oppression that they cause. So, um, yeah, it's disrupting normativity, I think, is a big thing for me. And I guess if you look at what the pandemic has caused of havoc over the past couple of years, uh, that's sort of a prime example of what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, I mean, remember the, the, those conversations in March 2020 where everybody was shouting um, how COVID is great equalizer. And then two years later, we look at Oxfam report that shows that Elon Musk increased his wealth by 1000%, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it's depressing. To, um, to It's both not surprising and depressing, I would say. Yeah, to say the least. Now, the, the show is called Deconstructing Disasters. So the obvious, simple question to begin with is, what is a disaster? Who wants to take that, that first easy question? <laughs> I'll, I'll start, and I'm going to give you a really um, <laughs> simple answer. So I actually, I want to answer this question by reading um, a, a short essay by our favorite author, that Jason and I are sharing, by Eduardo Galeano from his book uh, called Mirrors. Um, and so the piece is called um, Other Natural Disasters. In 1879, after three years without rain, the Indians number nine million fewer. It is the fault of nature. These are natural disasters, say those who know. But in India, during these atrocious years, the market is more punishing than the drought. Under the law of the market, freedom oppresses. Free trade, which obliges you to sell, forbids you to eat. India is not a poor house, but a colonial plantation. The market rules. Wise is the invisible hand which makes and unmakes, and no one should dare correct it. The British government confines itself to helping a few of the morbid, moribund die in work camps it calls relief camps, and to demanding the taxes that the peasants cannot pay. The peasants lose their lands, sold for pittance, and for pittance they sell their hands that work it, while shortages send the price of grain hoarded by merchants sky high. Exporters do a boom in trade. Mountains of wheat and rice pile up on the wharves of Liverpool and London. India, starving colony, does not eat, but it feeds. The British eat the Indian's hunger. On the market, this merchandise called hunger is highly valued, since it broadens investment opportunities, reduces the cost of production, 
and raises the price of goods. And so to me, you know, this piece is kind of the best definition of disaster because it really shows that disaster is a political process. Um, you know, disasters do not affect everybody equally. And those who are the most marginalized in our day-to-day -day existence are really those who are most hampered disasters. And so for the marginalized disaster, isn't a new kind of, a, you know, sudden or like a shocking or unexpected danger. It's just a continuation of everyday day harm. Um, and that harm is inflicted um, on those relegated on the margins of society. And so disasters, to, to me, they do not bring suffering. They simply expose suffering. And those on the margins who already don't have um, a voice in decision-making, you know, who, can, who claim um, no official place to live, you know, and who kind of um, tie their livelihood to just meager natural resources or, you know, environment that is degraded, um, disaster is not a unique event. So firstly, I think it's an excellent answer. We'll give you an A plus for that one. <laughs> Secondly, my, my question probably is, uh, so that's all well and good. I, I get it. I think we also see it when we are in the field and we, we try to somehow get a uh, humanitarian action off the ground. While I may have a bit of time to read interesting books at night, during the day, I'm quite busy trying to simply get my lock frame to click and to be driven by the humanitarian imperative, which is I must help people who I need, and that must be my overriding driving concern. So what is the relevance of what you've just said for me in that situation? What, what is your message to me? I guess, you know, to me, um, the message is about thinking um, what is really the impact kind of of a hazard, right? And what is the difference between a hazard and disaster? You know, so when you're on the ground, like, what do you do? You know, are you helping the weak? And I use quotation marks, you know, for the weak. Um, do you realize the strength of the weak? You know, do you acknowledge the strength? You know, how, how are they used? And kind of, are you resisting disaster risk creation or are you actually a part of it? And by that, I mean that, um, you know, of course the immediate help is needed. And this is why what humanitarians do often is important. And, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit more. But what does it mean in long term, right? Are we actually reinforcing um, vulnerability that's already there, the inequality that's already there? Is it just kind of a band-aid? Because I just feel that, you know, so much narrative around vulnerability, again, in quotation mark, and resilience in quotation mark, um, th you know, they become kind of labels, right? But these labels are not good. They're really, really pretty bad because they're about weakness. And I think when you're on the ground, if you're reinforcing that weakness, right, if you label people as weak and if you're kind of, um, you know, almost pointing to resilience as kind of being good, um, that, that, that just recreates the problem. If I can build on that a little bit, I was just, as you were speaking and thinking about, um, you know, how we... we know a lot of people who work in humanitarian sector and, and have had different people on the podcast as well um, and, pra and practitioners more broadly like people we have a lot of people that listen that are in emergency management for sure um, and so we find that there's um, you know people that really have have strong um, reasons why they get involved in, in that work and humanitarian principle and values that they're trying to to live by um and i think sometimes that that the compassion and the 
the passion that they feel um, is very is very strong and like immediate and it's like in the moment um, and for emergency management like we we just find a, a real disconnect with um, critique of the system and like really really reflecting on the part you that that practitioners are playing in returning the system to normal um, and you know even within our institutions like like I'm compromised in some way in my institution you know because of the things that my institution stands for and the injustices that it perpetuates um, but like we, we've talked on the podcast before about Anyana Roy and um, the idea of being like a double agent when you're in a condition of empire and um, I think this applies to some of our institutions because they don't reflect all of our values some you might be lucky enough to have an institution which is like really perfectly aligned with you but often we're in an institution that is doing things we don't like as well um and the the other thing that came to mind there was just like the idea of um external services or aid being provided to like the weak so Senya was mentioning this idea of the, the way we pathologize vulnerability and um the way that, that that definitely leads to humanitarian impulse if we do that. If we label people weak or needy or um, harmed, then it leads to humanitarian impulse, which is just human nature, I believe. Um, but it also has some negative impacts because it can obscure their strengths. It can obscure their capacity to um, help themselves. And so like, a, like what I, my message for practitioners and for myself as well, I think we, we can all reflect on our position as outsiders, as people not experiencing the harm um, or experiencing it in an indirect way. Um, and I think we need to reflect on, like, are we just, what, what, is, um, what is our role? How are we destabilizing the power imbalance? Because we often come in these situations with, a lot of power skewed in our favor and you know we can it can it can make you feel good to be like to be like a savior you know coming in but i think it there's always time to be reflect reflective about that and to try to to break it down and just and decenter yourself um, and i think that applies to researcher going into community doing doing field work or to practitioner um going into to provide immediate relief. Yeah, that really speaks to me, actually. And I think um, one of the big problems we have is that we think of the institutions in the humanitarian sector as the quote-unquote good guys. Yeah. Mm. And I don't think they're the good guys. I also don't think they're the bad guys. I, I just think they're the guys. <laughs> I, and that they have certain incentives and they behave accordingly. And so, so for me, I, I sometimes think of it, we have to fall out of love with the institutions we work for and fall back into love with the purpose we serve. That, that, that's one piece for me. And the other one is uh, the, the, the personal understanding of, of who you are and what you bring to the table and, and the extremely unhealthy position uh, of, of being a savior that, that you sometimes can can plunk into, I, 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 that also really uh, resonates with me. And I think, 
you can see that increasingly, I think, in the humanitarian community, that, that those discussions growing. And I think there is a stronger and stronger disconnect between that institutional stronghold that big aid, in a sense, has on, on the sector, and then these new th this new thinking around localization, decolonization, what, whatever you want to call that, right? So, so I think we are in we're in a time where that discourse is growing, but I don't see the shift in terms of behavior. Yet. Mm. Well, so but I, oh, I wonder. Go you go. I want to <laughs> say something else after you. You go. <laughs> Our favorite thing to do. Um, I, I just wonder, you know, reflecting on what you're saying, um, whether this is happening, the kind of disconnect is growing, right, and we're not evolving, is because our ideas of good are very, very much Western, right? They're kind of, they're informed by um, uh, Christianity very much, right? They're informed by kind of um, enlightenment and science that is, you know, treated as, as right, um, again, quotation mark, in, in, in westernized, and that is only right science. And we don't have those discussions, you know, we do not, I think, as researchers, and I believe as practitioners, you know, how often have you sat at the start of your career and thought, right, so where am I standing morally? And where have my morals come from, right? How, how do I know what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong? What informed me? And do I have an opportunity to discuss this and reflect and understand that actually, that's just me, right? I just, I just feel we are lacking that. And that's part of the problem. That's way more interesting than what I had to say. Um, <laughs> I was, I was just gonna, I just had the, the thought that like, um, the way that a lot of, of people responding to disaster looks to me is, is that they conceptualize what's going on as something that's, that's like sad and tragic, but you know, it happened and now we're going to deal with the, the consequences. We're going to try to help people. And that's fine, but a, a deeper um, critique of why it happened will reveal that the di disaster impacts are um, mapped across lines of oppression and inequality and injustice. And that's not natural condition for society. It didn't just happen. It was, it was designed and built like this to serve some people's interests. And so it's a hostile system for people who are being harmed by disaster. They're living in a hostile social system. And so like the role of practitioners needs to, needs to appreciate and, and actually become part of the struggle against that system, which is hard. Like you said, when we're, we're also representatives of the system often when we come, when we come in. As you're speaking, I was thinking, um, that makes a lot of sense to me when we're in the space of sort of uh, natural disasters, um, but if you think through that line of argument in the context of a, a war, for example, you, you could argue that it is important that there are certain rules and law that, that we agree that, that no matter who you are, you have a right to certain you know, uh, assistance. Uh, even if you are a quote-unquote bad guy, you still have needs, you still have rights as a, as a human being, right? And so... so what we have discussed so far for for you is that something that is predominantly or exclusively even uh, in in the natural disaster space or how much do you also jump into the the conflict side of things i guess we 
so you know kind of explicitly we uh, and academia loves disciplines right we kind of we, we like our little um <laughs> pigeonholes in, in, in from which we're not really allowed to kind of come out um so in in our disciplinary space i guess we would be seen as disaster scholars where disaster and conflict um would be separated but i, I think there is broader thinking there you know at least for 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 us in that both are very much a political process, right? And the results of displacement and oppression um, and marginalization, all of that, um, and recreation of kind of vulnerability and that marginalization is very much part of the decision or in decision-making and part of the kind of power exercise. Um, and and that's a, this, this is always at the heart of kind of what we're trying to do. And I, I, well, and, but I want to emphasize that I don't think that there are silver bullets. I don't think that there is an answer for how to reduce disaster risk, even in disaster space, right? Even just for kind of one hazard. That, that is never the case. And that is the whole point, right? That whilst we may talk about all of um, disasters and conflict as very similar processes because they expose oppression um, and marginalization, every single one of them at every different point of time uh, would be completely different for those exact reasons. I, I think that, um, like for some people in the in the conflict space and disaster space, they'll think they're um, pretty far apart in terms of like theory and practice. But for the way that we um, analyze a disaster, the way we talk about it on the podcast, the way we write about it, I think. Um, they're way closer than you would imagine um, in, in terms of the, because, because our focus is on the, the, the social condition, um, the, the material condition of people, um, and that actually leads to differential impacts in both of these cases. And so, yeah, we, we try to go to, to that level where there's actually a lot of commonality between the, the um, injustices that people are facing. Yeah, I just I just want to add to this a little bit in that because we see vulnerability as kind of um, as as a ground right to 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 the problem, so to say. Um, this is really important because currently vulnerability is almost used kind of to legitimize structural and f physical violence, right? And so that vulnerability as a label it hides right or disguises the sort of the crimes of the powerful right uh, because poor are undeserving you know poor are kind of weak and so that creates like a catch-22 right where social economic political vulnerability feeds violence and then violence feeds dispossession and oppression and further marginalization and we we are forever going in this regardless whether we're talking of a disaster or a conflict do you think we have made any progress I mean, you've, you've been, been in this field for, for a number of years. When you look back 10 years, 20 years, and you look at the way we manage uh, risk, the way we think about disasters, do you think we're making progress? And, and if so, what, where's the progress happening? I mean, to me, it depends on how you define progress. I guess the, the simple answer would be, here we go, this is what happens That's when you've got academic, academics in the podcast, very... right? <laughs> this is the last time I ever have these academics on this show. I mean, Jesus. 
just answer know, the right? question. We're really good at turning the questions into questions. Um, but no, like seriously, right? I mean, I guess the short answer, the simple answer would be yes, right? The, if you look at the stats in a way that um, disaster risk reduction is measured, um, it, it, it is becoming better, right? In terms of um, uh, loss of human life, for example, we've seen the actually reduction, right, in loss of human life and injury. And let's kind of park COVID to the side here, right? Which is which is great. Um, loss of infrastructure as well, although the kind of the costs are growing. But this is precisely the problem. And we've been doing this piece of work with our colleagues from around the world where um, we looked at what is actually being measured, right, and when we talk about disaster risk. And what is being measured is what can be measured, um, i.e., vulnerability isn't really measured because, you know, how do you measure oppression? How do you measure mar marginalization? How do you um, measure inability to kind of to um, invisibility of some people? Um, and that, that is the issue. So the progress is happening in that normative te technocratic disaster risk reduction space. But where the progress should be happening in, is in space of resistance. Because really here, you know, capitalism is a disaster. And until we make pro progress in resisting capitalism, right, in resisting kind of that power, um, disasters will continue to happen, right? Because it, it is at the heart of um, neoliberalism, it is at the heart of kind of capitalism, is that um, disasters expose and then they're grounded in, in the underlying inequalities in society, right? And neoliberalism relies on these inequalities to exist. And until that happens, disaster risk will always be there. So that's interesting. Uh, like, uh, while you were talking, I was thinking, so, so what's your sort of, uh, what's your disaster risk reduction heaven, if you will uh, forgive me the expression? You know, can, can we eliminate disasters? Will they disappear? Well, we 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 will always have um, disasters. Depend again, it's it's not a it's not a concept which is easily defined or everybody agrees on, um, because some people will always tie this to like a natural hazard, right? Um, but I, for, for the way I understand disaster is that um, we'll always have disaster as long as we have oppression. And we'll have our disasters will be worse the more unequal and unjust our societies are. Um, and like to me, are we doing any better? I don't. I think individuals, like practitioners, are working really hard to make it better. A um, lot of lot of researchers are working hard to make it better. Communities, for sure, are becoming more more attuned to why they're suffering. Um, and we've always had resistance against the status quo, and I think um, that's accelerating in my in my view. And I think um, it's at an institutional level that there is no appetite for disrupting the way things are, and so that's that's why what I was saying earlier I think is is connected to to this overall like move towards less risk is um, all of our collective action to destabilize our institutions, to like undermine our institutions sometimes, um, to challenge them. Because the, even, even if we're responding in a humanitarian, with humanitarian motive, we can still also be achieving um, institutional 
like stability and achieving institutional longevity when maybe the institution should die, right? Or the system should die. So like a lot of our action is, is also um, recreating the, the conditions that we need to displace if we're going to actually reduce risk. So it's a, it's a very radical vision you, you put forward and, and, and one that in many ways, I, I, I mean, I'm not far from that, right? But every time I go there, Jason, every time I start thinking like that, I also think that, my God, what would happen if we lost the institutions that are somehow trying to cling on to the last hope for, for multilateral action in this world? You know, and and I think sometimes those of us who are critical to to the institutional setup and think we can do better and think we can can have a more diverse, dynamic, creative, uh, adaptive uh, humanitarian sector, maybe without going as far as you guys in terms of of, uh, of the radical uh, nature of your vision, um, it it's still it's the fear of losing what we have that holds us back many times. To be to be totally honest with you. I, I think it's likely that the the institutions and systems that we are um, working within, you know, are are never going to give up on that because it's it's too it's too it's too too uh, scary. It's there's too much potential for like complete the fear of complete collapse, and the people that are already at risk are have no have nothing to help them, right? And, and so, so I think it's like, but, but maybe that's going to happen anyway. So maybe we can cling on for longer and longer, not take any serious action. And it's, it's going to happen anyway. There's going to be a collapse. <laughs> it, it is a, it is a difficult discussion, right? But, and, and you can destruct, deconstruct the hell out of disasters. You still have a lot of people in this world who are at, at risk of dying from hunger. And, and as a humanitarian, that, that in a sense no, you shouldn't have tunnel vision just on that. You need to, to think smartly and so on, but, but that has to drive you. That has to be a strong motivator, right? And, and so that, that for me is, is the balance. And I think, I think you're right in saying that, that that sometimes holds us back from really uh, having a go at, at the things that obviously are not working optimally. Well, that, the, coming back to like the idea of being a, um, like a double agent in a, within Empire is interesting because it's recognizing that maybe you can't you can't do you know destroy the empire right now um and saying like and i think a lot of the time that's the role of the humanitarian it's like how are you gonna work within that system to um to build relationships build the conditions for something better when the empire collapses <laughs> You know? It's that, you know, Audre Lorde comes to mind that, you know, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, you know, and we can have the best of the intentions, but the master's house will, will always win. Now, we've been through a couple of really extraordinary years. It's been, it's been such a strange time. And, and uh, if we didn't think about crisis and risk before, at least I think we have had ample time to do so uh, during the pandemic. And we know that climate change is going to uh, significantly increase the number of events we experience uh, in the coming years. So, what do you, when you think ahead 10, 20 years, what, what, what do you think 
what, what's, what's going to happen? How is it going to change the way we think about disasters? How is it going to change uh, resilience in different parts of the world that we will have a significant part of the population experiencing being crisis affected in ways they haven't before? Also, also the powerful will experience this. Also, the the very uh, well-cushioned middle classes in, in uh, first world countries and in, in our parts of the world will experience some pretty unpleasant stuff because of climate change. Is my thinking, how, how, how will that change things? You know, judging, judging by the kind of the way that politics is unfolding all around us, right, and the kind of the power of misinformation that we are currently seeing, um, I'm hopeful but not optimistic for the future. And I'll, I'll explain what that means. Um, you know, so when we talk about the future that holds climate change, right, and the kind of the, or that's the present that's already hold, holding climate breakdown, and the kind of, we know that the severity and intensity of climate-induced hazards will increase, um, we still only talk about that, right? We still only talk about hazards. And this is the problem. This is where the future needs to kind of evolve in that. And I, I have said this already, right? And that we now need to start having conversations um, and, and accept the fact that first and foremost, disaster is in the capitalism, right? So capitalism is disaster. And more sophisticated systems that the people suggested, you know, uh, and are suggesting that we will kind of carbon capture and storage and all that, all that, and reflecting the sun. And it's, it's all great, right? And I'm all up for innovation. But this kind of more sophisticated systems will not help us. Unless, of course, you know, you are Ayn Rand's Danny Taggart or, you know, Hank Reardon, I think, or Elon Musk, you know, if we, we, we don't need fiction characters anymore. They have re we have real ones. Um, and so that kind of, that, narrative about the future that it will hold more kind of unprecedented you know uh, shocks um, and unexpected events it creates an illusion that seems real and it you know it's what your chat calls hypernormalization uh, where the story and not the reality is what matters and we are creating that story now unfortunately and so this story of the future that we are narrating kind of almost to ourselves through the idea of more um, sophisticated systems, you know, of stronger defense systems, of kind of more resilient population. Um, it is it is a story of success, right? So we're talking about resilient future because we will be able, you know, it's kind of good old man versus nature. We will be able to tame it. We will kind of fight it. It's the story of success. And it's the story uh, where the narrative is all around us against them. But this time, of course, it's climate change, which is them. Um, and that's the language, you know, the war against climate change, the kind of the whole avoidance of using climate breakdown in, in, in the media, right? We really want the enemy. We don't want kind of the, the victim. And so what we hear is kind of, yes, um, everything is shit, you know, but there is happily ever after because our future, uh, we, you know, we, we will save the world yet again. Um, but what we don't say, though, is that that happily ever after will actually exist for very few and to me, part of the future narrative and the problem with part of the future narrative is, is that the word resilient, right, that we kind of almost see as a panacea to everything. Um, and I find that really, really problematic. Um, you know, resilience has kind of been portrayed um, lately as It'll resolve all the contemporary issues. You know, look at how World Bank, for example, uses the word resilience, right? And it has just became such a 
fantastically manipulated kind of neoliberal narrative um, that explains absolutely everything, you know, from how to cope with climate change and hazards to kind of to how you as an individual should act, um, that it, it became part of our kind of mainstreaming um, of development, right, and our future building. And so resilience has been portrayed as something good. And so our future is oriented toward that resilient good. Um, so it's almost like a goal, right? And we have to achieve that no matter what. And this is where the issue is, that under neoliberal conditions that are only growing, right? It's like seven lives of neoliberalism. Why, why hasn't it died yet? But it's like keep, keep enhancing itself. Resilience can only be interpreted as really the ability to survive under the conditions of destitution. But we are not talking about it, right? And, and I'm going to quote Sarah Brack, um, who wrote in her essay in 2016, Bouncing Back. She writes that uh, resilience basically means to absorb the impact of austerity measures and continue to be productive. So it's basically, you know, what she's saying is that resilience message, message for the future that we receive from our governments, from those who are most powerful, is that regardless of how oppressed you are, you should keep taking knock after knock and get better at coping, but we're not going to help you. Because if you're not resilient, you're not good. And why do we need bad citizens? And of course, I use this all kind of very in a very exaggerated way. Why do we need bad, bad citizens, bad neighbors, um, you know, when they're weak? And we don't need weak. It's kind of survival of the fittest. That, that's, a, that's a very stark uh, perspective. It's very focused on the role of capitalism, of, of neoliberalism. And I mean, it's it's for me. It's interesting, Jason, that you live in Florida because I believe you have capitalism over there. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> bit, bit of fascism. Go on. And I believe that you also are probably quite vulnerable to climate change. I mean, the, 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 there's a lot of coastline there, and and what, what's the? I mean, what's the thinking in Florida? It, is it? Uh, what do people think they're going to do? There's a there's a lot of uh, people here. So so rewind like like 15 years, and the the mood here was that climate change isn't a thing. You know, the the state government was saying you can't write this in a proposal. You can't say these words because it's it's not a, it's not real, and. But now, like I, people who live uh, in coastal areas are already experiencing impacts, and they like they can see in front of their eyes what's what's happening. So I think even regardless of like, and it's always been a very like based on political ideology as well, like the climate um, dialogue here. And so, in Florida, for sure, there there's been a shift towards you know even people who are more conservative um to like saying what are, what are we going to do about this because like acceptance of what's happening and um however the danger with that is is like connected with what Ksenia was saying around um like how do we respond do we respond by with like securitization do we respond by um trying to to frame it as somebody else's fault and we need to like build walls and and protect our borders and um you know and that leads to to increase oppression against others it, it leads to othering 
um, because you're, you become focused on protecting what you have. And so that's like my big concern in a, in a, a world where we have mounting impacts and we have displacements and we have um, places that are no longer inhabitable is, you know, that it's just going to lead to further inequality and further oppression because like, and we're writing, we're writing about this at the moment about like how vulnerability itself, you know, people being living in precarious situations is intentionally made into a security issue for the privilege, you know, and that, that happens now it's happened historically, but that's the concern for the future is even when, when we're talking about these narratives of like increased complexity of systems and like more risk being created and fragility, like the response of the state and of institutions is like resilience, like we said. It's about strengthening the status quo. It's about making sure that we don't lose what we have. And all of that is um, not related to justice, not related to, to um, making societies that are more interrelated and respectful and caring. It's related to being more individualistic. It's related to, um, you know, securing our privileges. So that's, that's the big concern for me in these narratives is um, that it, it creates like the, it creates kind of propaganda to prepare people for like atrocities when when they reject um, people moving, you know, reject movement, reject people's rights, because they say we can't afford those things anymore, you know, in the in the future, because uh, we'll lose everything we have, we'll lose our civilization. So that's a that's a big concern for me. You you this very strong link in your reasoning you have between between capitalism, neoliberalism, and and the way we. Um, we reproduce the same outcomes again and again. Who is getting it least wrong? Where are there any heroes in this story? Is China the good guys? I'm Scandinavian. Please tell me that Denmark is doing something right. I mean, where's the where's where's there something to build up? You know, to be people who are doing it right, and I'm really sorry, Lars. You know, I'm not gonna. I'm not the governments. People who are doing it right, um, um, the landless workers movements in Brazil, you know, the communities in the Philippines who are working in solidarity and who are based on kind of care and mutual aid, right? These are the women who are just kind of willing to just support each other and others regardless of anything. And so these are the heroes but we're not talking about them, right? Because what they do is about collective. And the collective isn't the story that we want to tell because that immediately um, gives us an opportunity to think, oh, wow, okay, so if the collective works, then why aren't we a collective, right? Why am I told that as an individual, I'm much better, I'm much more kind of precious, right? And um, all that, all that. So, yeah. No, no, no countries win the prize today. Sorry. <laughs> but we invented Lego. <laughs> okay, fine. Th that, that you can take. <laughs> you can have a prize for that. Yeah. So I, 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 that's, I get that point. 
And I think maybe let me re-ask the question then. When you see these different uh, social movements, where you see some hope and you see solidarity and you see groups of people working collectively to overcome these situations and improve it, do you see anything that can help scale that? Do you see anything in terms of connecting these different, often very localized uh, or regionalized uh, organizations? Uh, is there any hope that we can somehow build a a more powerful global force out of where you see the hope at the local level? That's a really difficult question because I I don't really believe in scaling up, right? Because every single issue that we talk about here, um, every single opportunity, every single strength, right? And every single challenge is very context-specific. And I think this is perhaps part of the problem in that... Um, this willingness to kind of to scale up and, you know, I guess going in hand with particular modernization, right, where kind of everything will be based on kind of collective, but exactly the same. We know that it doesn't work, right? We know that it didn't work at Soviet Union. We know that it doesn't um, really work in China. Um, so every, I think we just need to learn and reflect and kind of think how those sort of um, initiatives and so those sort of collectives could be translated into different contexts and what it is that we already have that we can build upon. I, I like that. And it makes me think of like, um, you know, in the US, we have a lot of local mutual aid organizations, community organizations, and um, they also form national networks and regional networks and learn from each other, but they don't control each other. And there's no central, um, you know, there's no central institution that tells them all what they need to do. But they they learn from each other. They have some, a lot of the time, shared principles, values, but sometimes they have different different focus. Sometimes they disagree on things and they have, they have autonomy, um, but also they have like responsibility to each other. They, they're in relationship with, with each other and learn from each other. So that to me is kind of a, a model that um, works and is like to some degree it, it can replicate, but it, it doesn't have that same, the problems of um, scale. And I, I would agree with Senya as well, that we were always focused on, on um, scaling up things because we're attached to the idea of a nation state. We're attached to... Um, the idea of big institutions that can make everything happen. And I think maybe it's because we, we're we afraid of all the people that will fall through the, the cracks if we have something less centralized, you know, and the people that won't be served by any, any organization or any group of people and will be left out. So I totally, it's, it's not like there's a, a simple answer to this, but I, I see hope in the replication of um, community organizations and um, just even even without organizational structure, just like people being in community with each other and uh, relationship with, with each other locally and with their neighbors and, and doing things and being, you know, being self-reliant and uh, in, a, in a positive way rather than like a bootstrapping way, <laughs> you know, and, and helping each other because they care for each other. What worries me, though, you know, and 
So I absolutely agree, and I want to emphasize that it's responsibility and accountability that really kind of matters here, right, for models like this to work. But what I really don't want to happen is because we are existing currently in the context of institutions and borders, right? And what we see very often with this kind of organizations and initiatives is that they're then called resilient in quotation marks, right? And just left to their own accord. Um, and the kind of any support provided by the government through taxpayers' money, right, is just completely, they just don't get it anymore. And until we are in the context of institutions, until we are in the context of nations, um, those organizations still need to be supported no matter what. It is not their primary role, right, to kind of, to, to rebuild what the powerful have destroyed. Mm. So, so, like, in terms of, um, an example of that is like providing like the provision of resources for local collectives that want to, you know, do provide something in, in the way of like food or healthcare or, um, you know, or um, education. So how much resources is a state willing to provide to, to people that live in a place to do the things that the state usually provides. Are you willing to give them all of your resources that you would have provided for those services? Uh, or do you need to keep those resources and make sure that you um, recreate your own, your own uh, service system? And I think most of the time, part of, part of it is not wanting to relinquish any control, wanting to make sure that your own institutions stay strong, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm probably a little bit more positive in terms of the possibilities of building a different support system around these local uh, community-based uh, organizations. And I, I sometimes think of um, how can we identify, uh, it's a slightly provocative term, but uh, non-humanitarian force multipliers. Uh, so... Uh, non-humanitarians, the private sector, uh, the state, obviously, and, and get them to do the heavy lifting for what we currently, as humanitarians, are doing. And I think, I think there is a piece to be explored around how how do you how do you create a, an ecosystem of quite diverse, uh, quite specific capabilities, uh, organizations, maybe, but but capabilities that can that can help um, recreate flow or, or reconnect people who have been cut off from uh, from the, the resources they normally have access to or who, who find themselves in a, in a crisis. How can we be much more clever around having specialized uh, capabilities, is the way I think about it, uh, to... to to come in not and, and, and hand out bread, you know, but to to ensure that that society re self recovers quicker. Well, yeah. Does one, that make sense? One thing I was thinking about there, Lars, is I was talking with my students yesterday about Wendell Berry. I don't know if you ever read Wendell Berry, but he writes about the United States, about um, mostly about rural towns that have been, um, you know, destroyed through through corporate interests and where, and he, so he talks about the way that like local business was um, connected to the people in the place, connected to the land, connected 
you know, more deeply and in a healthy way um, with the community in a broad sense. And the, the way that the government has supported these massive corporations to dominate business um, and to destroy local economies is really destructive to, to relationships between people and relationships between them and the land, which in rural communities in, in the United States, you know, people had a, a relationship that was like caring with the land, like a small scale agriculture um, and forestry and different things. And then you have um, a real massive disruption because of the way that, that everything has been scaled up and the corporations have got bigger and bigger. And Walmart, you know, you had these lots of towns that had, um, you know, longevity, they had character. And then you had like Walmart and strip malls that would go outside the town and their purpose was to suck all of the profit out of the town and basically destroy it. And, and make everybody there reliant on the strip mall and the Walmart. Um, and so like part of it is how do we like how do we attack the, these, this, these big corporations in a way? How do we disrupt their business and put and push the um, like when we're talking about working with the private sector, I don't think that's that should mean working with Microsoft and Apple and Amazon. That should mean we're working with like the local businesses in, in the place where you live. It's interesting. I've I've had a guy uh, I've had a guest on the show called Gopi from from India. He's a tour operator in India, and he works on a project he called Resilience uh, Resilient Destinations. And the idea there is that there are a number of sort of tourism dependent uh, communities around the world. You can think Mozambique. Uh, He's from Kerala in, in, in India, uh, the Caribbean, and they will be affected frequently by disaster, and, and they will be out of business, and they will lose most of their income. And so he has this idea, okay, so on one side, we can dual-purpose uh, tourism assets, uh, you know, most of the, the lodges and whatever, they own the trucks, they have the hotels, they actually have all of the assets you need for people on the move, which are also people affected by crisis in this case. And so why don't we dual purpose our, our tourism assets in crisis, in, in sudden onset disasters, and use the tour guides as, uh, as rescue people, uh, the hotels at, as camps for displaced people, so on and so forth. And uh, that somehow also gives the tourism industry something to do while there are no tourists. And at the same time, you have this billion-dollar industry, right? I mean, it, I don't even... It's, it's huge, right? It's, it's thousand times bigger than the humanitarian sector, for example. If you can siphon just a little tiny bit of the money going through that sector off to actually covering, having them pay, in a sense, the, the full price of heating the planet by flying all of us around the world, and, and then help uh, get these communities their livelihood back as quickly as possible, there's a win-win-win. So it is that sort of solution where you try to, in a sense, drive value and power and money towards local ecosystems of actors who, who, who will be affected by, by crisis in that sense, and, and, and try to make the big guys pay for that. 
Yeah, like I, I agree with this, you know, and it this is exactly about kind of capacity, right, and strength. It's like what works for that for those people, what works for that context. Because my my concern with you know making big guys pay, I don't know if you've seen last week um, in the news, Jason and I had a lot of kind of fun fun with that. That hundred millionaires signed this petition that the governments uh, should make them pay more tax, uh, tax, and we were like, what do you want for it? like a medal, right? Why are you so Go, go go and spend your money. Why do you need the government to charge you more tax? Um, go give your money to people who need it. Uh, in the last two years, we've kind of seen that there are quite a few people, right, who could really do with, with a bit of kind of income redistribution. And so, my, my, you know, my problem here when we talk about asking the, the big guy to pay is that we are almost to, you know, we are not asking... Um, them in the right way. What we do is that kind of almost charity very often, right? Which simply kind of reinforces the white supremacy. It reinforces legacy of colonialism, right? So we're just, we're actually, we're not challenging the issues that, that, that created the problem, right? In the first place. Um, and of course, Caribbean is, is the great example of it when the UK doesn't want to pay reparations to Barbados. And that's what would have helped but instead, we just send our rich tourists, right, upper middle class. Um, and that's how we support, in quotation mark, their economy. Mm. Yeah, and the, the idea of, um, you know, or maybe we're asking the wrong, the wrong question about, like, focusing on taxation rate of, of the wealthy. And the question should be, how does that wealth accumulate? Does it require injustice and oppressive systems to accumulate um, and if so, that's where we should be focusing our attention on um, making sure that that's not the system that we're depending on or allowing. Because, yeah, if, if we focus everything on taxation, we're basically saying that we agree with the system that allows people to become obscenely wealthy. All right, uh, Jason and Senya, it's been a fantastic conversation and we're coming towards the end of it. I think we should uh, wrap it up by... By you, I'll give you guys three wishes that you can g express to me. You, you can say there are three things, Lars Peter, you, we would like you to do differently. I, please change your ways in this way. And then I will do the same for you. I'll come up with three things that I would like you guys to do differently. So, so who goes first? So the, the one that comes to mind is um, recognizing the, the strength and uh, capabilities and capacities of um, people who live in a place, recognizing them as um, having, you know, re-humanizing re um, our, our narratives to focus on their um, value rather than seeing people as needy subjects. Thank you. Let me give you my first one. Don't stare yourself so blind of the injustices of the world that you forget thinking about how do we drive value, how do we drive resources from where they are right now to the people who really need it. I, don't, don't go totally sort of structural injustice. Also look at, at how can we short circuit some of the, the current power structures and drive some value to, to the people who need it. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll. I think I've got the second one. Uh, I'll try and articulate it well. Um, I guess to 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 you as humanitarian sector, and um, when you're on the ground, think about not just 
what's happening now, but also think about how you can maybe give hope for resistance and opportunity for resistance in a way that would be collective, that would be um, that would unfold in solidarity, and that would really bring people together rather than leave them kind of fight for resources. I like that. For me, number two is don't give up on scaling this. I I get it that it is nice and beautiful to see these local, authentic, communal expressions of solidarity, and they are fantastic. And I'm not being patronizing anywhere. I really I really mean that. I've worked <laughs> I worked among some of these uh, communities, accompanied some of them, and I it, it's it's the best professional experience I've ever had. Period. But. We can't stop there. there. There has to be ways of amplifying the good that is there and making their life easier and making it possible to scale it and, and to learn across and to build coalition of like-minded people who together can be a more powerful force for change in the world. I like that. I think connected to that is is a, um, a challenge that I might make is to to be double agent within your institutions to um recognizing the the recognizing the harm that you can do as an individual and as a representative of a powerful institution and trying intent intentionally entering a situation um as a double agent trying to decenter yourself trying to um conscious of the power often that you hold in a situation. Um, sometimes being, being like a, a very, like a secret traitor to some of the agenda of the, of the system that you represent. That sounds like a resolution for both camps, to be honest, you know? <laughs> it does, it does actually. <laughs> yeah, and I was yeah, tempted it to, it to totally say, oh, that's yeah. mine as well, but I'll give you a different one. So mine is, we know that we, when we go into an operation, that we, we don't come out smelling like roses. We know we'll make mistakes. We know we'll be criticized. We know that some of the actions we take will haunt us for years. I would like to challenge you to also have the courage to do that. It is sometimes the, the impeccable nature of academia. It, it's so perfect. Try not always to smell like roses. That's, that's a great. A that's a great challenge, and it's we we talk about this sometimes. Like, uh, are we talking talking about it in our current season? Because we're we're working with a lot of early career researchers, and like I feel like Ksenia and I are uh, pretty comfortable, you know, t saying whatever, even even though it might offend offend people in our field. Yeah. Uh, Field, yeah, but like academia is is pretty brutal for early career mm -hmm. in terms of setting limits on what you can say and what you can do. So yeah, it's it's a big deal for for academics. It is for humanitarians mm -hmm. as well. Climbing the yeah. corporate ladder in some of these uh, bureaucracies is no easy thing, and it, it is challenging in, yeah. in all the wrong ways. Senya and Jason, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fantastic having you on the show. I really enjoyed this, this conversation. 
And I will continue listening to Deconstructing Disasters because I think <laughs> you guys are fun and I think you do a fantastic piece of work. And so it's been great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lars. It's been really fun. Thank you so much. About the rights and the freedom to be For people to choose their path in life and dream Souls of men beyond what you see Stages are different for each who will lead Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks Fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets Ask better questions, pick apart, educate And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate We are, we are searching for more Open up your mind beyond rich or poor For the truth You've been warned, humanitarian. <laughs>